Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Whether it's giving us the tools to transform our health, our minds, our relationships to ourselves and others, we are committed to helping you and ourselves shine our brightest lights and unlock our highest potential for a more vibrant life. Together, all of these things influence how we show up in the world every single day. And today we are so excited to be joined by Steph Sifandos, a trained educator, relationship expert, and international speaker to unpack how our relationships are often a reflection of our self-perception and past trauma. Steph's work primarily combines behavioral science and psychology and focuses on helping humans restructure their relationships through escaping negative patterns and ultimately achieving a more fulfilled life. So we hope you enjoy this juicy conversation and make sure you follow Steph on Instagram. That's how he's here today is I follow him and his content on there is equally as juicy. Hi, Steph. Welcome to the Sakara Life podcast. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm excited. So we'd like to start off asking about your mission. So what is your mission here on earth? What are you gifting each of us? (laughs) Oh, wow. So I was, I was asked yesterday um, by one of my coaches, uh, one of my strengths. And so I listed all these strengths. And then she was asking me about my uh, areas of improvement as well. But she, she was asking about these strengths and I was going through all these strengths. And, I, and I, I sat with that yesterday evening. I was just in bed doing some thinking. And when I think about mission, I think about evolving my own self, right? like growing me. And I'm here to have the most robust, profound, full-spectrum experience for me because I know that when I do that and when I engage in that, when I come at life from that place, I automatically become a greater presence for others. Those gifts that I was listing yesterday and some of them were presence and safety and ability to connect dots for people, a sense of home, like those things come out when I am really focused on me in a healthy way, not in an unhealthy way where I'm in avoidance or I'm numbing because I don't want to feel some big pain or or big fear or big emotion, but when I'm just really being the best version of myself. And so my mission is to be the greatest version of myself possible because the domino effect that has on everything and everyone in my life, every relationship, every endeavor I engage in is just amplified. I love that. And so how does that mission of improving yourself and working on yourself? How did that mission lead you to the work that you do? Yeah, a couple of different ways. It's been a firstly a natural progression. <laughs> I say natural, but it's really environmental, right? But it feels natural. It feels like it's always been there with me. But for me, I grew up in, in quite a volatile, violent upbringing. And I had this desire and this yearning to really help other people heal 
But really what I wanted was refuge within my own self, was healing within my own self. But I externalize it because it's often easier to do. It works both ways for the ego. When we want something of great magnitude, we look outside of ourselves. And when we, when we are experiencing difficulty, we also look outside of ourselves for people to blame, right? And so for me, it was this grand dream of if I can be the UN Secretary General, I can help all the people in the world. But again, that's an allegory for really helping myself. And so I've, I've had this desire to help other people. And that's a very real thing within me. But over the years, what I've realized is, and back to the mission statement, so to speak, is that helping myself is of greater benefit to others and to myself, right? And so that's been that focus. And so it's come from a very young age. It's come from the experiences that I've had where I went very, uh, probably the best word to use is dark, for quite some time where I became hyper-selfish, self-absorbed. I was in deep avoidance of my pain and my suffering, my trauma, my abuse, And as a result of that, I didn't treat myself or people very well. What did that look like? Can you just take us into that for one second? Like when you say that you went dark, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so there were parts of my life where I was suicidal. There's a lot of infidelity and a lot of cheating, dishonesty, aggression, frustration, agitation, impatience, rage just in me and that would come out and project onto other people. As a young person, as a teenager and, and someone in my early and mid-20s, lots of physical fighting, like you know, just alcohol and violence and all of that. And so there was just a lot of suppression in that way, suppressing what was really needing to come forward and come through because I didn't understand it and it was just felt too overwhelming and so it leaked out in those ways in relationships. You know, my internal self-speak, shame, guilt, a lot of that, you know, low self-worth and then needing to compensate. So needing mm. to make more money or increase my status or have a better body or have sex with more women or whatever it was, right? The external thing that would make me feel better about myself because I was in avoidance of something really big mm. that I wasn't addressing. So that's the details of that. What was your moment? How did you go from that to the work that you are in now? Yeah, so I've been in this work for quite some time. I just was out of integrity. Like I've been in this work, so I'm 39 years old, I turn 40 next year. I've been in this work, you know, technically in the health and wellness space since I was 18. So I'm not, I'm not foreign to this work. I'm not like, I've just, I've come in the last couple of years or last few years because I had a revelation. Been in this work for many, many years. However, I was disjointed and disconnected from the work and disjointed from the way I serve people because I was living a double and triple life. And so, but to answer your question, the biggest turning point for me, and I had a few along the way, but they weren't, they didn't have enough gravitas. They didn't have enough gravity to pull me through and out of that pattern that I was in. But about eight years ago, I was in a relationship where she found out that I was cheating in that relationship. And it was that relationship that became the catalyst for me to really go within and look at myself and look at my actions and who I was being and how I was being in the world and how I was treating other people and someone that I, claimed to care about deeply and love deeply. I was treating her in a very disrespectful way because I wasn't being honest in a hurtful way. And I was claiming to be someone, I was wearing the masks and the facade because I didn't want to face the consequences of being seen fully for who I was. And that really created a cascade effect of completely shifting and changing my life. I went very deep into my own self-work. I stopped my businesses. I gave them up. I went into massive unhealthy debt, credit card debt, the only reason I was living somewhere was because I was under the roof of my grandparents' home. I'd looked after them for a number of years, but then they had to go to aged care because it was just getting too much. They needed professional care, medical care. And so I was just in this home. It was a modest home, but I was just in this home by myself. And I just stopped. I, I, 
cut certain friends out of my life, which was very difficult because I didn't do anything wrong. They were just perpetuating a particular way of being that I didn't want to align with anymore. I, so I made some big choices and, and I just went deep for a number of years into who was I, what was I avoiding and who did I want to be. But it was many years of really excavating the darkness and being with that in a compassionate, careful way and a, and a loving way, which was the challenge for me because of my conditioning. And I didn't do it completely on my own. I guess I was, I, I, there was a lot of solitude and, I, and I, I value self-reliance and solitude greatly particularly in the masculine, and I also had support. I wouldn't have been able to do it and move through that without support. Support of friends, family, or or were you working with somebody, a professional? You mentioned that earlier that you worked with a coach now. Okay, did you have a coach then also? Yeah, absolutely. So certain friends and family, spiritual healers, shamans, guides, counselors, psychologists. Uh, There was a coach that really, I had a second turning a few years after, eight years ago, about probably three years after that, that really was pivotal as well. Another pivotal coach in my life, two individuals actually at that point, a male and a female separately. And they were very useful and very supportive in my journey as well. So talk to us about what your work is. What do you do? How do you define it? Yeah, it's a great, it's interesting. I've been speaking about this with my wife, Christine. It's actually, I find it challenging to define, right? But the work that I do in the world is, I work with people to, you know, help them discover who they truly are, to help them heal any trauma, any pain, anything that they're avoiding, anything that's holding them back systematically in their relationships, in their vocations, in their passions, in who they truly are. I use various modalities, somatic work, breath work, trauma-informed work. I have a background in psychology and behavioral science. At the intersection of, of neuroscience and And somatic work, there's an intersection there that I play in as well, in a child work. I help people become greater versions of themselves. Individuals, couples, I go into corporations as well and help create a greater team cohesion in the relationship dynamics. I've worked a lot with special forces soldiers, Olympians, gold medalists, elite fighters, like really individuals at the extremes of mind and behavior and expression of the human potential and expression in the world. You know, and I've taken myself to those physically challenging places as well. So essentially it's human optimization is what I do through healing. And a lot of your work anchors on, at least the work that you show to the world, anchors on sacred sexuality and relationships. Yeah. So can you define what is sacred sexuality and what is a healthy relationship? Yeah, <laughs> because I'm not a quote-unquote marketer, I don't, uh, I don't have like a, a one-sentence elevator pitch for you in that, right? And, and I tend to be someone it's that… all right. We've, we've got time. <laughs> we've got time. And, it, you know, <laughs> you're familiar with my work, so you see that I, I uh, express through the written word but also the spoken word. And so for me, sacred sexuality, I can tell you what it is and I can tell you what it isn't from my perspective, which is also ever-evolving. For me, sacred sexuality is the encompassing effect of all that we are, but not only the effect but the cause as well. You know, when we look at various philosophical doctrines like the alpha and the mega and the man in the maze and these are you know tattoos that i have on me and what they symbolize in the the infinite knot as well it's just this infinite sense of self and sacred sexuality we find ourselves in ourselves through our sexual expression through our personalities through our relationship to sexuality to our self-worth how we're seen sacred sexuality is choosing to understand others to see others without judgment to engage in compassion right to to explore one's own body and one's and another body as well but not only the body meaning mind heart spirit all that encompasses self right 
And so sacred sexuality for me is, I was just thinking then, like, so every Sunday I, I put a, a post on and out on sacred sexuality, amusing as such. And the accumulation of all of those posts would probably define what sacred sexuality is. And to be honest, it's probably, I don't know, 200,000 words. I'm actually I'm releasing my, my second book in, in March or April of 2022, all about that, right? And so the interesting thing is that for me, sacred sexuality isn't just the highs. It's not just the elation. It's not just the joy. It's not just the cosmic sex, right? It's not just the, the fuck me to God or take me to God. It's also the shadow. It's also the whole of who we are. And that's sometimes the inconvenient parts, the the neglected parts, the painful parts. It's can we embrace those parts within ourselves and within someone else and move in motion with that in mind? So we're not being selective per se with what we're choosing to see in the other, but we're choosing to see all of that person, their history, their future, their presence, their mistakes, their love, their guilt, their anger, their ugliness, their beauty, like all of it. That to me is sacred sexuality. To me, that's sacred living. So, mm. you know, every time someone would ask me that, I'd, I'd probably respond a little differently. So <laughs> that's that's my response here that's and now. beautiful. I was going to ask you, you know, why is sex so important that you post about it on a weekly basis? But you kind of just answered that, that it's about this being able to express yourself and be seen, all of the different parts be seen, that in a way, if we're doing sex the right way, I'm using air quotes here, you know, the sacred sex, that it's a space for being that fully expressed version of yourself that you were talking about earlier, right? Is that how you see it? Why, why is it so important to you? Personally, it's so important to me because I've had so much shame in my life, body shame around my life, and my sex story has been really intense for me. So I started very late. I had sex before I masturbated. I'm not a big fan of the word masturbation, but I haven't thought of anything better yet. So I had sex before I <laughs> masturbated. My first sexual experience was with a prostitute that my friend took me to, and that was quote-unquote late. Kids were having sex when they were 11 years old in my school, and I first had sex when I was nearly 18. And so personally, it's been a journey, and it still is. It still is a journey. It's still unraveling so much of the stories that we've been told, that I've been told, that I've been shown within my family dynamic, within my own personal experiences. There's so much shame around sex. We don't know how to interact with it, quote unquote, properly. Our sexual education, and remember, it's more than just sex itself, it's more than the act of sex, Mm -hmm. but our sexual education, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to our thoughts and our beliefs, that forms part of our sexual identity as well. Our experiences with sex, are we forced to have sex? Are we, when we speak about sex, how do we feel? In what context is it being presented? Not only in a, at a macro level, at a collective level in our society, but at a micro level within our friendship circles, within our family dynamics, within our communities, our religions, our belief practices. And so sex is, is the fruit of life, right? It's the essence of life. And at some level, you can't have life without death as well. And so I, I, I don't want to get too philosophical or too metaphorical, but for me, why sex is sacred sexuality is so important. And when you look at those posts that I post, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be able to give you a quantitative count, but lesser about the act of sex and the, the sexual expression, although there's definitely a lot of that, like the physical sexual expression for sure, because that, that's a... It's a vehicle for accessing not only the intrinsic value of that visceral, somatic 
experience, right? That very much in the body experience, which is which is primal and fucking beautiful. But it's also accessing higher realms of consciousness, right? And we're using energy transfer to do that. But most of those posts are really about the way we interact with ourselves internally and how that is then shared with our partners. It's more about that. And and I use, you know, beautiful imagery that isn't my own. I, I, I capture and then credit other artists. I'm not an artist in that way. I'm a different kind of artist. Mm-hmm. And I credit those artists because that's what captures people's attention. And it's a real part of who we are. I believe it's a beautiful part of who we are. And it's something that my wife and I explore in different layers and levels that I've explored in my past as well, some through very unhealthy means and, and others through really healthy means, you know, where it hasn't been through codependence or external validation or, you know, trying to compensate for unresolved wounding. What are some of those, you talked about the things we're like working out in our head that then we bring to sex. What would you say are some of the most common ones that you see in people that you work with? Just our anatomy. Like we have shame around our anatomy, like our breasts are too small or we don't have enough abs or I don't like the shape of my Volvo or I don't like the shape of my penis or my ass is saggy or I don't like my feet or, you know, whatever aesthetic thing it may be, right? And then what we often do is we try to compensate for that that feeling. So we put on a false bravado or we behave in ways that isn't really authentic to us, right? Or we make the focus on people-pleasing. So it's all about sexually satisfying that person so now we're of value and maybe they'll miss that defect that we're quote unquote defect that we're so obsessed with that they probably don't even notice that we haven't fully accepted within ourselves so it's self-acceptance is a big part of that like that's so many people come to me with self-acceptance issues like with self-worth issues and wanting to hide behind that and what they've done over the years to feel better about themselves because here's the thing right and this is what i found to be true for me and the many many people that i work with thousands of people that i've worked with is that the bigger the pain, the bigger the compensation for pleasures required. So, for example, if I have a real low self-worth and I'm avoiding that, I don't want to feel it, my body, my nervous system becomes dysregulated and restless. My mind then becomes restless. Emotions start and feelings start and sensations start flooding my body that are very uncomfortable. Two things. One, I either don't want to look at it Two, I don't know how to look at, or I should say three, three things, three, a combination of those two. So now what I need is more pleasure to avoid that thing that I'm feeling, to take my mind away from that thing that I'm avoiding. So the pleasure can come in food, anything that elicits a biochemical, hormonal, psychological, spiritual result, plant medicine, sex, you know, peak experiences, right? Make more money, raise one status, be shown in the world to look in that way. And then you know, men and women have both have different uh, sexual mating strategies, right, that, are, that stem from evolutionary roots as well and then cultural roots that compound upon that so that we'll behave in different ways. So an example of that is when we're looking at males and females at some fundamental level, and it's not the complete story, but it's part of the story, is, is a man will look to a woman that looks aesthetically a particular kind of way. A woman will look to a man who carries resources, Right, these are just these are just evolutionary roots within the way we function. It's not the complete story. It's part of how we relate. It's part of how we interact. And so a man may go get a really cool sports car or uh, a really expensive watch or a big house, make it obvious that he has access to resources. A woman may make herself look a particular way. Men do that as well, of course, and women do the resource thing as well. But when we're talking about ancient male and female mating strategies, sexual mating strategies, 
we have likes and dislikes that we're attracted to and, and not attracted to. And so that form of compensation, because we're so caught in our low self-worth, it's fake. It's not real in the world. And so we're building fake relationships upon fake relationships. And we're presenting a particular way that's not sustainable because it's not really us. And then relationships break down and we blame the other person and we're not looking at ourselves. So I've been that person for so many years. For me, I just can't even fathom going back to that way of being. I feel very blessed that I had an awakening. I also feel very sad in the way that it happened, less for me and more for the circumstances. Like it's my human self, right? Like I know that that individual has her lessons, her path and all that. And it's really important from my perspective for me to take full responsibility of every stage that I'm at in life and really own that, not to shame myself and guilt myself continually through that, but to really own it so that I can move beyond it. So where do we start if somebody's listening to this right now and says, I want to start having more authentic relationships. I want to build a foundation for a long-lasting relationship and be more my authentic self. Where should somebody start? Now, I was, and I, and I say always really carefully, always go to reflection. So we're relational beings. We do life in relationship. We learn through contrast. There's a richness in that learning process and growth process. And when we receive feedback from our environment, we are able to see parts of ourselves that we haven't seen before because often we can't see the forest through the trees. So my wife at the moment is pregnant and every day she says to me, am I getting bigger? Am I getting bigger? Am I getting bigger? I'm like, can't you see you're getting bigger? She goes, no, I see myself every day. And I'm like, yeah, but I see you every day too. But the point is that she sees it. She's, she's right though, right? Because it's small, small growth and she sort of doesn't notice it because she's getting accustomed to it all the time. So reflection, trusted, respected, revered individuals in your life, whether it's a therapist, a coach, a friend, a family member, a group that you're a part of. And ask big questions. And, and if big questions are too big for you right now, ask small questions such as, you know, a big question may be, tell me what you think is my quote-unquote worst quality, right? That's a pretty rigid, harsh, direct way to ask, but that could be really intense. And if someone's being honest, that can be really confronting. But you may say, hey, what do you see in me that you value? Let's start with, start with what's working. What, 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 are the, what are some of my healthy qualities? And get that reflected back to you. And, and can you see how you're being that in the world? We need contact with ourselves at deeper levels. And I, I think it happens, I don't want to say best through reflection because it also happens amazingly through solitude because there's something that, that, that happens there that's really special in solitude and silence and stillness in being with one's own being, right? particularly for the masculine and energetic. That applies to every human being, particularly in that masculine and energetic. However, reflection through trusted, respected, revered sources is so important. Yeah. One of the reasons I particularly like your content is, and you just touched on it, is I don't often see, speaking somewhat genderless here, but like the masculine approach to sacred sexuality. I think it typically is shared from the feminine perspective or as if it's for the feminine experience. And so I like this idea of also learning like the divine masculine. You hear a lot about like the divine feminine, but there's obviously a divine masculine too. Yeah. And so what would you say are some of the kind of approaches to sacred sexuality between the masculine and the feminine and some of the key differences? So to just to clarify what that question means, coming off of Whitney's question of what do we do? Like I think it is important to talk about if you have feminine or masculine tendencies, 
and how you approach sacred sexuality or or the self and working on the self? Mm. It's a great question. I think I've ever been asked that question before. It's really cool. So the first thing I would say is the key differences aren't that different. Mm. Yet in the outward, because, and I'll tell you what, what I mean by that. And so if there was a, a source to the approach to sacred sexuality, it's about growth and expansion and evolution and intimacy and healing and connection, right? And I would think that both masculine and feminine energetics would share that. Whenever we have a, an object that we're pursuing, though, we're in a masculine energetic. So we, <laughs> so we may say, you know, that the masculine wishes to attain that and the feminine wishes to embody that. So there's some key differences mm-hmm. there, right? So masculine is, is a direct path to here I am, here's this thing called sacred sexuality, I need to get there, what are the steps, stages and hierarchy for me to get there? Right? That could be a masculine approach. Whereas the feminine approach could be I am sacred sexuality already, not how do I get there, but more so what needs to occur for me to embody that at every layer of existence? And can you help me and can I help you through that process? That could be a more feminine approach, so to speak, right? And again, and I didn't say this, but I'll just just say for clarification's sake, masculine and feminine energetics are simply two wings of the same bird, the bird being the beingness that is us in the world. Mm -hmm. And the masculine and the feminine are simply contrasted energetics, ways of learning and being in the world. And as I said earlier, my belief is that contrast creates deep richness in learning and I believe accelerates our learning. Right? Because we have healthy comparison now. And it's not comparison for the sake of this is better, this is worse, this is worse, this is better. Difference and what you align with. Because you, know, you may go to a Starbucks and you may just want a plain coffee with no sugar, but you may want a mochaccino with cream and caramel and all that stuff. But, you know, so we just have different preferences in how we do things. Or, again, you know, you're mowing the garden or you're mowing the lawn or something. You may mow it in a particular circular way and someone else may mow it in straight lines. At the end of the day, the result's virtually the same, just a different path, right? So it's not about what's better or worse. It's what works for you and what's working for you in this moment and what aligns greatly with your energetic presence. So I have a question for you. I have a number of friends who are single in their mid 30s, some men in their early 40s, and they're always looking for the right one. What advice would you have for them to find the right one and to find the relationship that is going to be long lasting? Say three things. The first thing is if you if you adhere to understand, have a connection to the law of attraction, the truth behind that is that we would understand there is no one per se. There are many. Mm-hmm. And who you're attracting in this moment and the relationship dynamics that you are creating in this moment is the relationship that is absolutely the one right now, right? The second thing is to answer your question in an even more direct way, I would say do your inner work. Get to know all aspects of yourself. Relieve yourself from the core wounds that you've experienced as a child. Not everyone has. Most of us have. We've experienced some level of trauma on the spectrum of trauma, little t, big t. Maybe it's not chronic. Maybe it's not acute. Maybe it's not a combination of both, but it's something that's impacted our personality, our way of being, our character, our belief systems, what we think we are worthy of and what we're not, our likes, our dislikes, what we repel, what we attract, all those things. 
Get to know yourself. Get to know who you are and what you desire. You know, mid-30s, 40s, you start to establish patterns and habits that can be more challenging to break. Mm-hmm. Get to know yourself and get curious and creative about who you are. Now, to get curious and creative, you have to have a regulated nervous system. If you have a dysregulated nervous system, that means there's something in your environment or habits and patterns over many years compounded are playing out in your life that aren't serving you. Heal that shit. Do your inner work, essentially, right? Like you've, It's so, so important to do your inner work, like to really get clear on who you are and what you can offer and what your non-negotiables are and, and heal the past, like heal those patterns that keep playing out with a different, you know, different haircut and different face, but it's the same relationship. Mm-hmm. And the third thing that I would say, and just a, a little bit of, <laughs> I would say self-promotion here, but my wife and I have an amazing program called Be the Queen. And Be the Queen is specifically for ladies, so it's not so much for your male friends, but it's for women that are looking to evolve their dating life and their relationships. But the biggest component of that is healing so many past wounds that keep them on repeat and not living the love that they deserve to have. And so those are the three things that I would say, but the most important one is the second one that I mentioned. Because when we continue, and we can do that in relationship, by the way, as well. We can definitely heal. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like, I feel like at that age, you start looking for the perfect person, the person who's already done the self-work, the person who has the job, the career in place, you know, already looks good in their physical bodies, all of these things, knows how to love you and care for you and give you the pleasure. But is there, I mean, Danielle and I both entered into our relationships at a pretty young age, 22 and 24. And through that time, I think we've been able to, you know, me and my husband, we've been able to help each other grow and develop and become the people that we are today. So at that age of like 36-year-old woman or a 42, 44-year-old man, is there still that ability? Should they be looking for this ideal perfect person or a person that they're going to work with in a relationship? What do you think? In standard Steph response, yes and no. So let me elaborate on that. What's probably most important here is to let go and release what it needs to look like. Mm. That doesn't mean you can't have non-negotiables and healthy boundaries in place and, and ideas and ideals of what you would like. But let go of exactly how it needs to look like because then what we're doing is we're limiting ourselves. We've put ourselves in this box and we've forgotten why our truth of wanting to be and yearning to be in relationship actually exists. It's not to tick boxes. It's something deeper than that, something that is fulfilling us and and filling us up at a core level that is choosing to evolve us. So if we can let go of what it needs to look like, there has to be a physical archetype or has to have X amount of money or has to be in this industry. And that's not to say you can't have standards. 100% have standards. How you play those standards out in the world really matters and how then you choose to show up in the world as well because often what happens is people want all these things mm-hmm. all these boxes checked but they're unwilling to do that thing themselves or be that thing themselves or mm-hmm. be the change that may be requested of them yeah absolutely i see that a lot of people feeling very comfortable in themselves and they want so much out of the other person but they're unwilling to change how they are in order to attract that type of person they think that they deserve. I also think that in this day and age, Whitney, we just missed the dating app boat 
Right. I think like the dating app, it's like it makes it so transactional and it makes you lead with your head instead of your heart. Like yep. if I had seen my husband on an app, <laughs> would I have swiped left or right? I don't, I don't know. And you're not supposed to know. Like it makes you like look at how they are on paper and in a photo. And Whitney and I, when we were talking about this podcast and prepping for it, it we were talking about leading with the head versus the heart. And there was something I just knew. I just knew he was my husband when I met him. And so then I just knew, as Whitney said, there's been so much work along the way. It's not as if I knew he was my husband and then it's the fairy tale and happily ever after. It's Mm. like, that's when the real work begins. And I think this generation that's dating on the apps has forgotten because you're so used to just being so transactional and leading with the head and the checklist that you forget that finding your person actually means you're signing up for the biggest work probably until you have kids and then it's oh, yeah. <laughs> a whole new kind of work. Of course. And so you touched on a couple of really powerful things there. Effort was one of them. Daniel and Whitney, both you touched on that. Like The effort required when in relationship that we, we live in a short-term gratification, quick-fix society and effort is often not applied. Oh, it's not going to work. I'll just move on. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. swiping culture presents us with an illusion that there are so many fish in the sea, so to speak. An endless amount of people to swipe through. Yes. And the reality is that's not true. And it's No, it's not of- true. I have one friend. She said she made it to the end of Bumble, where it said you have no more matches. So there is and, a limit. And, and not only that, we're finding that certain dating apps are putting fake profiles up. Whoa. Many fake profiles up. And so Whoa. 80, 90% of the profiles. That messes with your head. Yep. And so you have this illusion that there are far more matches out there for you than what you believe. It's really easy to become rigid and have this superficial idea of relationship. Now, there's nothing wrong with just wanting to have one night stands or casual sex or not be emotionally attached or intertwined in someone else's life. There's nothing wrong with that at all. The issue comes in when we lie about it or when we're not honest about it, right? But again, that's, <laughs> these are part of our evolved mating strategies that both men and women have because we have a goal and we don't want anything to interrupt that goal. So we justify a little white lie here or giving them what they think they may want is okay. Then we justify, oh, but it's going to be pleasurable for them. And it's going to be, but the reality is it's not, it's not how it is. So we have these old, very old mating strategies that are you know, three to five million years old within us and have evolved over millions of years, that play out in a far more complex culture than we were in a million, two million, three million years ago. And so we're learning about ourselves in ways that is not even familiar to us. It's not even obvious that we're learning about ourselves in these ways. And dating apps is a very interesting part of our culture, a very interesting part of our culture, and I don't think is healthy for any form of, any definition of sacred or conscious relationship or healthy relationships for that matter. So you know how... You don't know what you don't know. Mm. And it's really hard to (laughs) even begin to understand how to start to know what you don't know you want to know. Mm. (laughs) So for people listening, how, oh, like when you say sacred sexuality, don't even know what that means. How, like, it makes me think of back when I was yo-yo dieting all the time. And it's like, I didn't even know that a life... I truly didn't even understand what a life with a healthy relationship to food was like. So it was really hard to reach for. It was really hard to solve for because I couldn't imagine it. So how do you help people imagine what their sex life could be like when they don't know or when they've been kind of 
cultured and conditioned to think about the typical kind of pornographic sexual experiences and encounters. Yeah. So whatever is easily accessible and comfortable for you in sexuality, in sexual intimacy, stop doing that for a moment and get uncomfortable. Now, let me be really clear what I mean by that. I'm not necessarily talking about, and, and pardon me, I don't mean to be graphic here, but uh, we're all adults, right? So I'm not talking about a, a, se- a, a sex toy, like an anal sex toy or something that you've never had and you're scared of that or anything like that. I'm not talking <laughs> about that, right, as an example. Or, you know, being... Though it being, could be that too. Although it could be that, absolutely. <laughs> very much, if you're comfortable enough, but uncomfortable to go there, right? But it doesn't have to be anything extreme. It doesn't have to be kink is my point, right? But more so vulnerability in sharing yourself in intimacy. Mm-hmm. So there's an intersection of sexuality and emotionality there. And so maybe for you it's asking for what you want in sexuality. Maybe it's wanting to know a little more about your partner. Maybe it's wanting to share something that's been on your heart for many years and you've never felt safe enough in a partnership to share and you want to share it, whether it's got to do with sexuality or not. Maybe it's you asking, making requests for your needs in physical intimacy. Maybe it's connecting deeper before sexual intimacy commences. Maybe that's through gentle touch. Maybe that's non-ejaculatory practices. Maybe that's transfiguration or eye gazing. Maybe that's the setup during the day or during the week and how you communicate in general. Maybe it's how you argue. You want to argue differently and you want to make a request around arguing differently and disagreeing differently because when you feel safer in your disagreements, you'll open up sexually. That's a starting point. I'm going to go back to also what I said earlier about we're relational beings. Find some expertise in the space that can help you, that will ask you key questions that will help identify where some of your blocks are and where some of your needs are and what some of your objectives are, whether it's around embodiment or around experiencing something in a particular way. Now, I say that with a caveat, especially in the world because sexuality is so shadow in our collective, right, that there are charlatans out there. And there are people out there that are doing really funky things and claiming it to be sexual healing. So be really mindful with who I, I personally do not I'm, not, I'm not a sexuality coach. It's not what I claim to be. I encompass the full spectrum of who we are. Sexuality is part of that in the world, right? It's part of who we are as humans. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with uh, people that are intimacy coaches or sacred sexuality coaches. In fact, the woman that my wife and I are working with, she's an inter- she calls herself an intimacy coach. She's amazing, massive integrity, super knowledgeable and wise, right? I also include a great amount of intimacy and sexuality in what I do. However, you just got to be really, really careful with who you bring on when it comes to sexuality, right? who you bring into your life as a guide or a coach. Mm-hmm. I also feel like it's important for people to, I think about at Sakara helping people imagine what it's like to have fun in their bodies, what it's like to experience their bodies, what it's like to get the noise out of the way, like my dieting brain or my self-consciousness around my body and how it looked. And by entering on this journey with us, it's helping get rid of all that noise so that you get to experience life, so that you get to get like the bullshit out of the way. And when it comes to sex, it's like I imagine... It's helpful for people to know. It's like you learn so much. I think it was, we had Jaya on the podcast and I remember her saying, you know, I think it was Jaya who said this, but 
she like asks people whenever she goes to speak, did you have a sexual education? And a lot of people say like, no, not really. And she's like, we always have a sex education. It's just Mm -hmm. like, it might not be the one you're looking for, you know, but we've been taught about what good sex is and what sex means and what sex should look like. And so you've, you've touched on this too, Steph, of like, how do we unwind that? You have to imagine what you can't imagine. You have to imagine like the possibilities and that pornographic penetrative sex is not the only sex that's out there and that orgasm is especially the one that's typically represented in the culture is only like one small portion of the types of orgasms people can have. So it's also, I imagine, like knowing there's so much on the other side of this work. There is, and and you're right in so many ways. And one of the things that I I do with my clients is so many people are disembodied. So many people are disconnected from their bodies. They don't even know that they're burping or that they're they have flatulence or they don't know that they walk a particular way or that their head tilts a particular way. Like getting in your body is so important. So before we even go to sex, which is so often so vulnerable and so big for people, I want people doing cartwheels or learning how to do a cartwheel. I want people putting their feet in the grass. I want people taking inventory of how they move during the day. I want people to start moving their body and exercising, dancing, swimming, walking, running, lifting weights, pick objects up and place them in different places around your home. Like Get into your body. Start to taste food. Take a few deep breaths before you eat. Slow down. Place your utensils down between each bite. Like really feel the sensation of the food in your mouth. Be mindful. Have a mindfulness practice where every day, and this works very well for regulating the nervous system as well, and especially if you're in a, on the edge of trauma or in trauma, but name things in your objects. Like there's, a, there's a lampshade here. So I'm going to describe what the lampshade is. It's got a cream texture. There's this bulb here. It's it's on a metal frame. There's a button to to press the light. Like I'm going to describe things. I'm going to touch things here. I've got some felt here. Like I want to really feel that, close my eyes and deprive myself of other senses and go into the sensate, the kinesthetic, the feeling and the touch. People are so disconnected from their bodies. It's so important they come back into their bodies before they can go to something as powerful, explosive and vulnerable as sexuality, whether it's with self or with others. Yeah, being present, being in your body, being aware, aware of yourself, aware of others, aware of your surroundings. I think that you've given us so many great light works throughout this entire episode. (laughs) So much work for us all to do. But I am curious. Uh, You have to pick one. (laughs) Yeah, I am curious. If you were to pick one thing for people to walk away and do today, what would your light work be? What is your practice that you'd like to leave our listeners with so that they can go out and shine their lights a little brighter? Love your fucking shadow. Mm. Love the dark parts of yourself, the parts that you hate, dislike, avoid, numb, the parts that you hide from the world, begin to be in deeper communion with those parts. That's your light work. That is everyone's light work. You can't have the light without the dark. You can't have the dark without the light. If we're speaking about light work, you can't, you can't have the contrast of light yes. without embracing your dark because otherwise we're walking around feeling fractured and broken. We're not. We're actually whole. We always are, but we feel the perception of fracture and brokenness. And remember what we said about pain and pleasure and the compensation piece? We're just going to be walking around, moving around, trying to put that pleasure back in our bodies, avoiding that part of us that just has that needs a voice, that needs expression, that needs to be seen, that needs to be loved. So love your fucking shadow. And what is one thing that I can do to love my shadow today? You said you're married. 
Yes. You love your husband? Yes. I'm going to put you on the spot. Trust your husband? <laughs> yes. So is there anywhere in your relationship where there's something that you wish to share with your husband that you're holding back from? Likely. I would say so. Yes. <laughs> Can you share it with all of us right <laughs> you now? You don't have to, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so Danielle's pushing you. She's pushing you. But find that mm, thing. That's what good friends are for. <laughs> so they're exactly what they're for. Find that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Be in deeper communion with it with yourself first before yeah. you, and I'm not saying that you'd vomit it out, but before you bring it out to your husband. And then share that thing with a trusted, respected, revered source. And we're just going to use your husband as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we bring our shadows into the light, we diffuse the shame around it and we begin a deeper level of healing. So in short, speak the thing into the world that you carry shame, fear, pain around, whether you, even if you write it out in your journal to start with, that's a starting point. I just write it out in your journal. If it's too confronting to speak to your therapist, your coach, your friend, your husband, whatever, write it out in your journal and begin to dance with this thing. Mm. Physically, like write something out in your journal, put a journal in your hand and dance with it. Physically dance with it around the room, but also dance with it metaphorically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Yeah. That's where I would start. I love that. It reminds me of when Danielle and I started Sakara and we each had these places in ourselves that we disliked so much, my acne, my skin, these cysts on my face, Danielle and her body and relationship to her plate. Those were not things that we wanted to have out in the world or have anybody know about. And there were things that were hidden away. And once we started to talk about them and bring them into the light, we realized One, maybe they're not so bad. Two, other people also have a similar shadow or places where they feel that way about themselves. And it made it easier to start to work on it and start to heal those places. So I really love this light work. And I love all of the different light works that you've given to us throughout this hour-long conversation. So thank you so much for sharing these gifts with us and our listeners today. I appreciate you both very much and I'm very inspired personally by your stories as individuals and I can relate to to both elements of that story, right, of your stories, it, well, part of your stories, of course, that you've shared here from a personal level too and just really inspired by what you've created in the world and, you know, how you're serving people through your own personal stories and, I mean, it's it's no joke. Like it's a, you have a big facility, you have hundreds of employees, you're helping and supporting people, you're educating people in health and wellness. I mean, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. I love goosebumps. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's really cool. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steph. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Likewise. Thank you. All right. Beautiful. Thank oh, you. I that was so that fun. I love that episode. That was yeah. so good. Well, that was a hot and spicy episode, Wit. I love this one. This is so much fun. It was like the entire episode was filled with light work, things that we can do to work on ourselves and improve our sacred sex. Yeah. It's got me in the mood. (laughs) The mood to work on myself, that is. (laughs) (laughs) If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. 
Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Sakara Lights.